Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're uh, going back and turn to chapter 26 of the book of Proverbs. Uh, last week, we, we started chapter 26, and uh, we looked at uh, three great verses that really uh, define for us some key aspects to uh, a fool versus the wise man. You know, and I've told you uh, many times how that the book of Proverbs is a contrast of those two, but within that contrast, you find uh, the things that you want to look for. You know, everybody, everybody at some point in time of their life follows somebody, uh, either somebody's teaching or your, somebody's thoughts process, or uh, what, and it's, it's either going to be a wise man or a fool. And that's why one of the reasons Proverbs is so valuable because of the fact that it kind of tells you what to look for. And last week we looked at two, three great verses and, and shows you the great contrast. That, uh, that, and we found that, uh, you know, he likens a fool to snow in the summertime. And I told you how that, you know, the two are incompatible. And a wise man and a fool will be incompatible. We, we talked a lot about that because many of you experienced that in dealing with people. We talked about how that <clears throat> rain in harvest, a fool is likened to a rain in harvest. And that's because when it rains at harvest time, you can't get your crops in. And it, it's a picture of a fool will never really do a work for God. He'll never get anything accomplished in his life. There will all be, be rainstorms and always problems in their life. Then we looked at uh, three uh, aspects. We looked at a horse, we looked at an ass, and we looked at a fool. And I ask you, what all three had in common. And, and of course, we talked about that all three of them are, are worthless until they're broken. And uh, we went into great detail, and we, we talked about that, uh, how that uh, uh, a, a horse that's unbroken is unrideable. An ass that is unbroken is, is uncontrollable. You can't get it to do whatever you want it to do. It's stubborn. And a fool, before he gets broken by the things of God, is, is worthless. They just... Um, they, they just will not do what God wants them to do. Then we looked at the phrase, actually I think it was this phrase and then the one I just gave you, but it doesn't matter, uh, a curse causeless. And I talked about how that that doctrinally was a picture of uh, the Roman Catholic Church and how that uh, all the anathemas, all the curses that she's placed on Christians all down through history and even to this day, how that it means absolutely nothing. But I took it into a practical application, and I, I showed you uh, that when you begin to work with a fool, somebody who's not going to turn the corner, and uh, they're going to, uh, you know, uh, wherever, they, where, wherever they work uh, in their vocation, um, you know, they always have the supreme job of being the village idiot. Uh, they're just always doing the wrong things and doing the dumbest things on this planet. And when you try to help them and you try to work with them and you try to get them uh, where they need to be uh, in time, they, because they don't want to change, they, they turn on you. And, uh, you know, they slander you. They say things about you. And, and uh, when they reach their saturation point of biblical principles and they can't go any farther, then, you know, you're going to become the problem in their life and you'll never deal with it the way they need to. The bottom line is means nothing. Absolutely nothing. God, it, it means that they have no blessings of God in their life and you have the blessings of God in your life and you just keep on doing what you're doing in, in, in the work of God. And we're going to find that chapter 26 is probably one of the key chapters in the book of Proverbs on understanding what a fool is. It's the great fool chapter. 
you're going to find 10 direct references uh, to a fool in, in the first half of the chapter. And then a lot of secondary references as we come through the rest of the chapter. And uh, it will be one of the great chapters in Proverbs dev- uh, devoted to defining for us uh, the fools of life, whether to be saved or whether to be lost, because you find them in both worlds. It almost forms for us a biblical case study uh, that, uh, of what a fool is and how, and how he thinks. And today, you know, we're going to look at two more verses. And now, after defining him and seeing how he thinks last week, and we got some information on him from last week that we can work with. Now today, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you how that you deal with a fool. And uh, they're always going to be in our world. They're always going to be in your life. You're going to find them. And I want you to understand it. You people are a great group of people who engage yourself with other people. Uh, you, you have a great quality of opening up your heart and your life to others and trying to help them. And that's a commendable deal. But along with that, you need to know that you're going to run in sooner or later, probably sooner than later. You're going to run into people who only want to go so far and they're going to fit into the category of a fool. There'll be others that you meet that totally against everything that you believe. And in both cases, you need to understand how to deal with them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, This is another principle that when you learn to use it, And you learn to use it, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, by exercising your senses, by allowing God to put the Word of God into your life through here, the structure of this church, you doing something with it in your own personal life and then allowing God to take you and invest your life in the life of somebody else. And by doing that, God exercises your senses, senses, being sensitive, understand, being sensitive to what the situation is. Unfortunately, most of God's people will never be able to do this. It's not a complicated and a hard thing. It's, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, but the problem is they can't get past their own foolishness. They can't get past their own emotional instability. They're always allowing their emotions to cancel out the really valuable things that, uh, that God wants to do in their world. So uh, let's read our two key chapters here for today, our verses here for today verses 4 and 5, and then uh, we'll look at it. First off, it says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be also like him. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Glenn Ballou, you're in the back there. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the the, uh, servant this morning? Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, at a glance, these two verses seem to be at odds with each other. They seem to be a contradiction of one and the other. And one says, answer not a fool according to his folly. The other one says, answer a fool. And there are two verses stuck side by side. Now we know that there are no contradictions in the Bible, so we're going to rule that out before we even get started, not waste any time on it. The so-called contradictions that men came up with in the Bible, oh, a hundred or so of them, you know, uh, they even write books on them. Uh, about 90% of them can be figured out with just a little bit of common sense, which is not too common today. And then the other 10%, just a little study involved and maybe comparing some scriptures, and you're going to find out that there are no contradictions. What you have is men who hate the idea of a final authority in their life over them, and uh, they try to tear it apart to get rid of it so they don't have to submit themselves to it. 
And like most places in the Bible that seem not to match up, and I've taught this before to you when you learn how to study your Bible, uh, we have a great picture here in dealing with people, uh, fools. In other words, when you find a place in the Bible where it doesn't match up, there's usually a great truth involved with it and something God wants to show you. And uh, if you're going to work with people, you're going to work with people. You're going to have to learn this one. And uh, one of my favorite places in the Bible is back in Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12, you'll find that he takes a chapter, and this is after they have fought all the great battles that they have been through. And he stops, and uh, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because he stops and he lists all the battles that God has brought the nation of Israel through up to that point. And it's an incredible, uh, incredible chapter. And it, 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 to me, it's always, it's always been a, um, it's always been like when you see a, a soldier someplace that's been in the military for a long time. <clears throat> you'll, on his chest, you'll have his campaign ribbons. And if you know how to read those campaign ribbons or the other things that he may have on his uniform, you can pretty much tell where he's been, what he's done, and, and who he is as far as his military career. Every ribbon that he has will will stand for a campaign that he was in and maybe another country. Within that country, he may have fought in four or five different engagements or battles. So on that ribbon, there'll be a star for every engagement he was in. When you look at a World War II guy and he's got the European campaign medal on his chest, if he's got five little stars on it, that means that he fought in five campaigns in World War II. If you fought in five, more than five, then when you hit five, then they put a silver one on, which was for five, and then the rest of them are brought. But it, it shows where they have been and, and what they have done. You'll see some of them have jump wings on them. That means that they have been parachute qualified. Some of them have what they call a CIB, which is the Combat Infantryman's Bad, which means that they spent so many days under fire in combat. You can look at their chest, and you can see where they've been, what they've done, and to what degree of soldier that they have been doing. If you're a cook or you're a clerk or whatever, you may have the straight ribbons, but you'll never have the combat things that are put on them. And when you know how to look at those things, you can pretty much tell where a guy's been and what he's done. And in Joshua chapter 12, uh, he talks about the campaigns. And each one of those campaigns would represent for the nation of Israel a campaign ribbon. And I've always thought to myself that a real Christian soldier, a real Christian soldier, I know we don't wear uniforms, we don't pass out medals, but not yet anyhow, but a real Christian soldier will have a chest full of campaign uh, ribbons on his chest. That will represent the battles that he's been in, the engagements that he's been in, the people that he's worked with, and everything on that is, is important and says something. My point is simply this. If you're going to get to that point that you're going to get fully engaged and you're going to work with people, you need to learn what I'm going to talk to you about today. And let's talk about fools for just a moment. Now, basically, we think uh, that a fool, like in the book of Proverbs, is simply a, a saved man or a, a wise man who is saved and finds the things of God, and an unsaved man or a fool who, who rejects the things of God. And in and, and most of our minds, that's where we leave it. 
And Proverbs talks about that, and there's no question about that that is true. That, that's, that's in its simplest form, that is true. But in the Bible and life, there will be more to it than just that. When you examine from the Bible a fool and a wise man, you're going to realize that, yes, for sure, unsaved people are called fools, and certainly they are fools. But when you get a little deeper in it, you'll find in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, you have God's people who are doing God's work. They're really engaging in the ministry, and yet the Bible calls them fools. For he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. You are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but you are despised. And what he's saying there is that from the world's standpoint, we from a Bible standpoint look at the world and we see them who reject Christ as fools. The world looks back at you and me and sees your commitment to Christ, your dedication to the Word of God and to the things of God. And because they're so full of themselves in the world, they look at you as a fool. And, you know, many times uh, God's people look at it that way too. You'll have friends, you'll have family, you'll have uh, people that your acquaintances, saved and lost, that won't serve God. They don't want to go past a certain point in their life. And when you do, they look at you as being foolish. I had a lady one time that uh, years and years and years ago, she, she came in to see me, and I was a youth pastor then, and she was having all kinds of problems with her son. And the boy was having struggles, and he was into the world and doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And uh, she asked me if I would, would help him. And I said, absolutely. So I, I got this kid, met with him, started to help him. I discipled him. This has been years ago. And I worked with him, and the kid really come on fire. He really got into the Bible. He quit all the things he was doing. He quit running with the crowd. He quit the drinking. He quit all the things the kids were doing. And he was coming to church every time the door was open. He was in the book, and he was really doing well. Well, now I get a phone call from his mom, and she's totally upset with me. She's totally upset for me because now she feels like she has lost her son to God. What a terrible thing to happen. And she's accusing me of getting her son overdosing on the Bible. It was okay when he was overdosing on everything else, see, but my point is this. She got to the point where she thought that Christianity and really becoming a committed Christian was a foolish thing. And you're going to find people like that. You're going to have your brothers and sisters. You're going to have some of your moms and dads. When you decide that you're going to do what's right for God, they're going to think you're a fool. And I want to say right now in defining a fool, being a fool for Christ is a really good thing. Because the Bible says the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for you are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But then you will have saved people, not just lost people, you will have saved people who are not fools for Christ, but just foolish as an unsaved person in a worldly way. And, and in dealing with people, you will have to deal with fools. I'm sorry, saved and lost. I mean, I wish we could put up a sign, no fools allowed. But that would be very foolish. <laughs> and these two verses we're going to look at today, they show you how to deal with them. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 
So the world's going to come at it from one standpoint, and many times God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven who should know better falls back into foolishness of the wisdom of the, of the world. Now, our two verses today will show us not only two kinds of fools, but I'm going to take the time and show you this morning two different ways that you deal with them. You never, I, I know I teach you all the time about Bible principles, and I teach you all the time about everything and dealing with people, and patterns of human nature and all that stuff. And all that is true. But at the end of the day, you don't always follow the exact same plan for everybody you work with. People are different. You have to know the principles, you have to know the patterns, you have to know this and know that, know everything about it, but then you have to be smart enough to be able to read the situation and adjust and adapt what you do know to each individual for what their needs are. Now, that's, that's a pretty impressive thing when you can get to that point in your life. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that'll get you someplace. And uh, you will have men and women saved or lost who are fools because they just are ignorant of the truth. That's all. And you'll have people, men and women, saved and lost who are fools because they hate the truth. And you don't deal with them the same way. Most of God's people do. Most of God's people don't know how to deal with them at all. But we're going to talk about all the ins and outs of this today, and I'm going to get into some detail, and we're going to get some things going here and some different scenarios, so I want you to uh, stay with me here and, and, and follow through. And hopefully you will learn in time how to deal uh, with them uh, definitely and definitively and how to, uh, how to understand and to recognize which one you're dealing with, the one who is just ignorant to truth but is a fool or the one who hates the truth and is a fool and they're both unsaved or the one that is saved and just ignorant and the one that is saved and just in the world. And the key to all this, and we've talked about this many, many, many times, the key to all of this is, is one single word. It's the word understanding. <laughs> understanding in the Bible will be the highest level of the wisdom of God. When you go through learning everything about God, when you hit that peak in your life where you have understanding, understanding is the God element. Understanding is whatever scenario and situation you're dealing with or you're looking at, knowing how God fits into it. And throughout the Bible, understanding is held up as the number one aspect of God that, that we need to get. It's understanding that will be the key in making right choices. Uh, when you see a situation or you're faced with a situation, that you have to make a decision about your involvement in it or how it's going to affect you. We talked about last week the, re, uh, the react versus the respond. How you react to it or how you respond to it will just simply come back to do you understand it from God's standpoint. And throughout the Bible, understanding is held up as the number one thing that we need to get. In the Bible, there's seven great truths given about understanding. And I want to I give them to you here uh, in, in, as we come through this to get to the point we want to get to. Seven great truths on understanding. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul speaking to young Timothy and me speaking to you. He says, consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now, that's a great verse. And the first thing that you want to know about understanding is it, it, you're, once you get it, it'll be in all things that you have to deal with. 
It won't be in just some things because the Bible will cover every issue that man gets into and every problem that man has and every issue you're going to have to face. Your job and my job is to get into the book, get the principles down, exercise those senses, which is which most of you are doing, and come into the place and in time that God crowns you with the understanding. Now you see it. Your emotions are out of it last week. Now you just see it as it clearly is based on the principles and then how you feel about it, how you move toward it, how you deal with it is not dictated on how you feel, but rather what God feels about it. Well, that's the place you want to get to in your life. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, there's our three key words. Knowledge, that's the facts. Wisdom, that's the facts applied. But then understanding, that's seeing the knowledge and the wisdom and then through the principle seeing God's hand in it. What is he doing? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. Uh, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. You know what he says here? He says that your assurance of what you have in Christ, we have a lot of people in life that, that have, don't have the assurance of their salvation. They struggle with it all the time. Other people don't have the assurance of who they really are. They always walk around, say people, and they always walk around like there's something wrong with them. They don't think they can ever do anything for God because they have a bad self-image of themselves. And I want to tell you something. The assurance that you are going to have that you are who God wants you to be and you can do whatever God wants you to do comes not from how you look at yourself but seeing and getting the understanding of how God sees you. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance uh, to the saints. You get understanding by allowing God to use what you see. The situation God's put you in, the things that come into your world, how you view them, how you look at them, how you process them, the people you work with, your own children, your, your husband or your wife, the people that you have close to you or the people that God puts into your life or the circumstances that come into your life. How you approach those from the biblical principles of the Bible, God will take those and he will, he, the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. And you'll see, uh, God sees. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, this will be the fifth one, by the way. Be ye not children in understanding. He's talking to the church at Corinth. But understanding like men. Now that tells me that if you ever want to get understanding, it's a growth process. Nobody gets saved with understanding. We all start out as children, babies, seven stages of spiritual growth. We've talked about it many times. And there's nothing wrong with being a child or a baby or a, a young Christian that is likened to a, a young child or, or, or children. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't stay there. As long as you recognize the church at Corinth didn't want to go past that. And in their understanding, they're looking at things like little kids. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, every problem that you have in any church in this country could be solved probably in 20 minutes or less. You know why it's not? Because they're a bunch of little kids. They let their emotions get involved. They let their emotions dictate how they do things. They never go to the Bible. They never follow the process of fixing something through the Word of God. And they just act like a bunch of sixth graders on a, on a recess schoolyard. There's a process to getting understand, a growth process, spiritually speaking. Then he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Luke, when talking about the church and the ministry, he said that he had perfect understanding in all things. That as you get more into the Word of God, it perfects your understanding. And you get to the place in your life at some point where you have 20-20 vision when it comes to understanding and seeing things from God's standpoint. That would be a feat. That would be a great thing for somebody to get to that point. I'd say probably very too, very few people ever get to that point in life. But hey, I, I'd be satisfied with just 75%. And in Luke chapter 24, and this will be the seventh one, verse 45, it says, Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And the final thing I want to tell you about understanding is that it has to come from your relationship with God. Your education, your IQ, where you went to school, the college you graduated from will have absolutely nothing to do with it. It has to do with you walking with God and the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God, through your growth process of looking for knowledge and facts and understanding and God opening up and illuminating your eyes and then He opens up the Scriptures that you might understand them. You see, understanding is is simply the ability to see a situation that's before you. I, I had Bible Institute yesterday. We had a great time there, and we were talking about, I forget what we were talking about, but anyway, it was good. And I was telling them about a volleyball coming up. And uh, I was talking about the fact that uh, I was going through uh, the seven things not to be ignorant of. And we got talking about, and I got talking about young men and young ladies uh, that teach the Bible, and I got talking about, you know, it, it, it's a, we all laugh about it and joke about it. You'd think that people would pick up on it, but you can't fix stupid. Uh, it's a thing where you, you have people who do a devotion at volleyball or softball, and it runs an hour. You know, everybody is out going to Dason's Deli or out going someplace, and the park is closing, the lights are coming on, and that guy's still out there laying it out. <laughs> and I told them, I said, you know what, that is so... That is so a great example of somebody who doesn't understand the situation that's before them. You've got people there who are unsaved. You've got people there that maybe don't go to church at all or are out of fellowship with God. And they didn't come for a sermon. They came to play softball or volleyball. But oh, no, 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 no. God has called you to be the Elijah on the mountaintop. No, God's called you to be the discerner of truth, and you're going to stand there for 45 minutes, give them three outlines and a poem, and maybe show a film, and if it gets dark enough, and it probably will as long as some of you go, and, and I'm telling you, I told them yesterday, you need to get in, say what you need to say, and get out. 10, 15, and I gave you an example yesterday. I did a great one for you, and I, I didn't time myself, but I was in my time limit. I gave you a great one on, uh, on, on whatever it was. It was really good. <laughs> what did I have for breakfast this morning? Let me see. Anyway, understanding is simple. You got a volleyball. It's a good example since we're going into volleyball. You got a volleyball team? How do you see it? 
guys ask me, you know, about our athletic program, and they say, tell me about your athletic program, and other pastors, and, I'll, and, I'll, and he says, so you, you, you get all these teams together, and then you, you, uh, you, you, um, you, you play volleyball, or, or softball, and then you, you find a way uh, to, to get the gospel to them? Is that, what, is that how it works? I said, no, that's not how it works. He says, well, how does it work? I said, we get a team together, we give them the gospel, and then we try to figure out how to play softball. You've got to look at it right. If you're a volleyball captain, that's your ministry for the next four or five weeks. Isn't it a volleyball team? And I know everybody wants to win, and people can get caught up in that. I, I, I get that. There's nothing wrong with good competition, but at the end of the day, you know, that's your church. And, in, and how you give them the Bible just depending on your understanding. Do you see it for what it is? Do you see the people that are there? Or are you just so caught up in what you want to give them to impress them with what you know about the Bible? Well, you know, if that's your case, just let me know. I'll have you come on Thursday night and you can take three or four minutes and tell everybody everything you know about the Bible. <laughs> and having... Understanding is the ability based on the principles of the Word of God to use biblical principles to deal with any scenario. Being able with people to discern, yeah, the patterns of human nature, sure, but also the ability to address them biblically because you understand it. Leaving your emotions out of it. When I keep saying that, I don't mean you don't get emotional. You love people, you love this, but you don't let your emotions override the principles. We have a saying in the people ministry, you, you know, you never want somebody to do right more than they want to. And that's an emotional thing because people will come to the point and you'll want them to do right more than they want them to do. You'll cut some slack on them when it comes to the principles and you'll wind up getting burnt. It, it, it comes back to that old thing that I tell you. Did you tell your sister about those five candy bars I wanted? Yeah. Okay. There are priorities in life, and I need to know that. I want you to know that. Well, if I don't do it right now, I'll forget about it. You know, those are really good. I want caramel ones. Five of them. Your dad will pay you for them. I call it smarter than the problem. You know where we come from with this. You know, in hunting, uh, and you know, many of you guys are hunters, so you know this. Troy and Steve will get it. Norbert will certainly get it. I mean, all of us great white hunters will get this. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> A really good tracker in hunting, if you're really into it, you just don't go out and shoot something. Because normally it's going to run off, especially a deer. And you got to be able to, you don't want it to suffer, so you got to be able, you don't want to lose it, especially if it's a nice one. So you got to know how to track it. And so a really good hunter who's a really good tracker, he'll know what to look for. I'll walk around for the next four weeks and never find it. But he'll see the branch broken. He'll see the drop of blood. He'll see the, the rock overturned when it took off and was running. He'll see all the different things. I remember years and years and years ago when I first came to Missouri, you know, I, I got introduced to, they didn't have these in Ohio, hunting turkeys. And it was, to me, it was a lifelong pursuit. Uh, and I, my goal in life outside my Bible was to learn how to use one of those little turkey called diaphragms you put in your mouth. I swallowed six of them before I ever got it down. 
and I'd sit there. My wife was so sick of me hearing me, clock, 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 you know. And I, but I got it down, and I was good. I could purr with it. I could, I could peck, 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 peck. I could get it down, man. I had it good. And I, I watched every turkey hunting video there was by all these guys. You know how they put them out, Bubba? And uh, I, I learned everything I could. And, and you know, and in certain times, no, no, let me show you. You're laughing at me, but okay, here it comes. In the fall, you, you, or in the spring, you can't kill a hen. Just kill a gobbler. And in the fall, you can kill both. So, yeah, or get caught doing it. But anyway, so you, gotta, you, you look for scratchings. That's, that's a guy, he's, they, a turkey will get, and he's looking for acorn. He'll scratch a circle. Ah, but squirrels do that too. I've watched some of you. <laughs> and so you, got, you don't want to be hunting turkeys looking at a squirrel scratchings. Now, I know this isn't important to most of you, but just bear with me here. There is a point to this. So what you do is you get down on your knees and you, and you pull it aside and their little feathers will come off. This is probably academic. Squirrels don't have feathers. <laughs> so when you find these little feathers, you know you got turkey scratches. So you're on the track. But I don't want to shoot a female. I want to shoot, a, I want to shoot a, a male. So now you look at turkey droppings. I didn't know this. You know that male turkey droppings, you can tell whether it's a male or a female by the droppings? It's the way they taste. <laughs> Now, that was a hard one, but I wanted to be a woodsman. A male... They call a male turkey a jake, right? Yeah, a young one. Yeah, okay. You don't have to correct me. Just say yes when I need to. So a male turkey dropping will be in the shape of a J, right? A, A female one will just be straight. Here, I got a picture of it in my Bible. Let me show it to you. But, but you learn how to track them. And you know, you know, you, that's how you find them. You know, you, you, you guys that hunt deer, you go out way before the deer season and you look for rubbings where deer rubs his antlers on a tree to get, that, get the cellulose off or whatever he's got on them. You know? And, you, and, and you, you track them. You put out your little cameras to find out where they track, where they go. I get it. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, a really good personal worker, just like our woodsman, will know what to look for in others that he's trying to help. And just like you and I could go out in the woods and never see a thing, most of God's people, a tracker will see exactly where it is. Most of God's people will never be able to see the signs in the people they're dealing with. They'll just be oblivious to it. And he simply, through understanding, a fool knows what to look for. And then once he knows what they look for and he understands which one he's dealing with, then he knows how to move forward on it. Now, with that being said, let's begin to see how we deal with our fools of life. Verse 4 will be uh, one way, and that's where we don't answer a fool. And verse 5 will be the other way, where we do answer the fool. And verse 4 says... Answer not a fool according uh, to his folly, lest uh, thou be, uh, also be like him. Now, fool number one. 
here we have a person, as I said, could be saved or could be lost, that is totally ignorant of the truth of God's word. But that makes him a fool. And in that ignorance, he is a fool, but there's no hatred for the word of God. He's just ignorant of it. Maybe he's never been taught it. Maybe he's been in churches and he's never been exposed to it. He genuinely loves God and and wants a relationship with God. He's just a victim of, of what he's been taught, who he's been around. Now, there's great examples of this in the Bible. The great example would be in Acts chapter uh, 18, uh, where you, in Acts chapter 19, where you have the story about Apollos. And Apollos, the Bible says, was an elegant, eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Ah, but he's, he's, he's been hanging out down in Alexandria. And he didn't know anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The last thing that he heard is what he trusted for his salvation was John's baptism when John was preaching repentance. That's all he knew. He had no idea that Christ came, died on the cross, and now that John's baptism was worthless, and now you had to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. He didn't know that. So he comes into the church here at Ephesus, And the Bible says that he's fervent in the spirit, but he only knows the baptism of John. So they're having a church service, and they're saying, who wants to give a testimony? Come on up here and talk about it. And he's an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. And he comes up, and he starts preaching to them that they all need to get baptized (laughs) with John's baptism for salvation. Now, there's a husband and wife pastor team here in the book of Acts, and uh, they have a church, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And the Bible clearly says there that in verse 26 that he goes to the church there and he begins to talk about that stuff and Aquila and Priscilla take him aside. And the Bible says that they explained unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now what did they do? They pulled him aside and they say, look, Apollos, I know you've been hanging out down in Alexandria and that's not the best place, but that's beside the point. Let me tell you, John's baptism is no good anymore. John's baptism was the repentance to Israel. This is now, Christ came and died on the cross. And now, baptism doesn't save you. Now it's the blood of Christ on the cross being shed for our sins. And baptism of John won't cut it for you. Now, he didn't argue. He didn't debate him. He didn't pull out his Bible and say, what about Acts 2.38? He didn't do any of that. The Bible says in verse 27 and 28, he gets it. No debate to it. He simply, simply, simply responded to the truth. Because you know why? He wanted the truth. Now you see another example in John chapter 4 with a woman at the well. Now this woman's got some serious issues. She's collecting husbands. She's like the woman that I knew that somebody said... uh, you know, what does she do for a living? She says she's a professional housekeeper. Every time she gets a divorce, she keeps the house. I mean, it's a thing where, you know, this woman's got some issues. But I want you to notice how Jesus dealt with her. He didn't clobber her for where she is at. He explained to her about the water and the well and everlasting life, and she accepted it. Now, why did he... Why did he come to somebody who's deep in sin and treat them the way they did without even mentioning in any great detail 
couple passing references to it about the lifestyle that she's living. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because he saw something in her. And what he saw in her was more important of the things that she was into because he knew that if he just gave her the truth, she would respond to it. Uh, we see this on Bible study. We do it all the time. You know, uh, I've watched people come in and you've called me on the phone. DJ did it a couple of weeks ago, you know, and some of you have done it where you have somebody coming in that's, that's got something that they're, that, that, that they're believing, that they're struggling with, and you'll ask, you'll ask the question for them. Or in other cases, you set me up like it's your question. And, you know, and it's a thing where that's, that's what you do. And in, in many cases, or most cases, the people will accept it. I mean, they're like some charismatics, some neo-evangelicals. They're messed up on the Bible, their tongues, or eternal security. But when you open the scriptures, they'll see it and they'll accept it. And they may have to work through it for a while, but they'll get it because at the end of the day, they do love God and they want the truth. They've just been a victim of where they've been. Now, I, 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 I fancy myself like a polish, not eloquent in the scriptures or a mighty man, fervent in the spirit, but I do have this quality that he's got, and I've had it all of my life. People think that I'm dogmatic. People think that I'm, I'm, not, I'm closed-minded, I'm hard-headed. No, that's true. I'm the most open-minded man you ever saw in your life, and I've had a standing policy in my own life that whatever I believe, whatever I preach, whatever I teach, Whatever I hold as dogma in my own personal life or what I think the Bible teaches, I will change in five seconds or less. You see, I have no personal axe to grind with anything in the Bible. I don't care. If the Bible said tongues were for me, I thank God I'd speak in more tongues than all of you. If I thought baptism would save you, I'd be baptizing people all the time. I, I, I don't care. It's not a personal thing to me. It's whatever the truth is, is what I want. And when somebody can sit down, I, every time I met with a Jehovah Witness, I say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be your best prospect today because if you can answer one question for me, I will come down to your kingdom hall right now. I'll resign my church and I'll get baptized as a, as a JW and I'll be the best Jehovah Witness you ever saw. Now, none of them ever answered the question. I'll give you that question here a little bit, part of dealing with fools. But I don't have, any, I don't have anything I got to believe. I just want the truth. You sit down with me and open up that book and show me this is the way it is, book, chapter, verse, and lay it out in the Bible with all the pieces in the right place. I'm in, man. I mean, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. I just want the truth. I don't have any preference about anything I teach or believe. I don't care. I just want the truth. And if it's the truth, I'm going to preach it. If you got the real truth and I got the wrong truth, show me. I'll be with you, and I'll dump what I'm teaching so fast, get up and apologize to the whole world, because I don't care. I just want the truth. Now, you'll find people like this who, who want the truth. You've got to be careful with them. You know, uh, through, the, through your discernment and perception and understanding, you see what you have, and you want to make sure you don't hurt them, because it's easy in a Bible study where somebody will ask a question that doesn't go along with what you believe that you feel threatened or like they're challenging you. So your first reaction is to swat them like a bug. Well, that's insecurity on your part. I don't have to whack anybody, but the day I do whack you, you'll know you've been whacked. Amen. But I don't look for that. There's a guy who, you don't know him, a couple of you guys know him. 
I think. He calls me about every six, seven months. And he's a nice kid. He will never do anything in his life. He graduated from Dr. Ruckman School. He's one of the washouts. And he's up here in Kansas City. He, he doesn't have any church he goes to because he can't discipline himself to any church. I think he's been kicked out of most of them. And he's got one, one speed. Kill everybody and let God sort them out. He called me six or seven weeks ago and he says, Brother Alexander. I said, hey, how are you doing? I have since then, you know, I, the thing I love about phones is that when somebody calls you, you can lock their phone number in and then you can put whatever you want. And I, I put on his number, think about this. <laughs> Some of them are no way Jose. <laughs> and so he says, well, brother, how you doing? And I said, brother, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing pretty good. He said, well, I just wanted to call. How's the church going? I said, it's going really good. He says, yeah. He says, I've not found the church yet. He says, uh, there just isn't one out there. You know, uh, he, he knows this one is good, but he's not out there. Translation, I don't want to go to church anywhere. And, you know, they all got the same mentality. He says, sometime let's get together and go out and go whore bashing. No, no, no. Don't get nervous, ladies. It's okay. it's just, wow, man. This title at the Roman Catholic Church. The Great Horror Revelation. I, I think, I, I hope, now, not that you guys have said that, but I'm not too sure. I get to see going into the Dick Sporting's guy. I want a whore bashing bat. You know how I. Anyway, he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And his mentality is, kill them all. Just nail them. He never stopped, or could he ever possibly, because this guy is dumb as a stump. He could never possibly even conceive that there may be a Roman Catholic out there that is caught in what they're caught in and just looking for the truth. His whole speed is just bash them. Bash them. And there's guys like that. I've told the story before. I was in... A Boston preaching up there and a pastor picked me up and we were going out to eat one night and he wanted to spend some time with me and you know I'm good with that so we went out there and we're driving down the middle of Boston and he's got a CB in his car and CB's got a PA on it and so every time we come up to a light he turned the PA on and there'd be women and men walking across the street and now this wasn't street walking women these were nice dressed women some of them with, with guys this come with the guys. They're all nice. He's on there. This woman walks by and he says, God knows where you're going tonight. On a loudspeaker. He started talking about fornication and, and, and uh, to, uh, the guys are just walking down the street. And he looks over to me and he says, boy, being a witness is great, isn't it? And I'm thinking, you are an idiot. I, I, I want to... Can I get in the trunk and just wrap on the... And then he hands the mic to me and he says, here, try it, brother. I picked it up and I said, parts, line one. And I hung that thing down. <laughs> Ain't no way I'm going to do that. I mean, do you think you're going to win people to Christ that way? Now, this is what the Bible says. You, you answer not a fool or call him his folly or you're just like him. And here's a guy that is saved 
thinking the unsaved people are fools, and he's a biggest, bigger fool than they are. And a fool will not discern what you have in front of him. John chapter 1, verse 17 says that the law came by Moses, but by Jesus Christ came grace and truth. I'm going to tell you something. We got the truth, and we stand on the truth, and I preach the truth, and we believe the truth, but we also have the grace to use that truth. Now, our second fool is completely different. Here, verse 5, he says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, here, we are told to answer a fool according to his folly. Now, this will be a fool, saved or lost, who hates truth, who hates God, even though they claim to be in a religion or they claim to love God. They'll hate Christianity, and they have established for themselves uh, another God. Now, in the world system, this would be the liberal mindset that we all know and love. It would be scientists. It would be evolutionists. It would be the great philosophers of life. It would be the world. It would be men and women who, uh, in a world system, that their God is all that they have in their their possessions. Or, in a religious sense, it would be the the religious cults that uh, are all through America, and uh, you know, and 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 learning how to deal with them, how that they 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 have a form of godliness, but they're, uh, they're, they're what we call the American cults. Now, let me give you some understanding. When the pilgrims came over here in 1620 and founded. The, the United States. They came over here fleeing religious persecution. It was by the hand of God. They were in Europe. Europe is all landlocked, and their athlete church had a stranglehold on Europe, and, and, and not only that, the Church of England and all the other groups. And they wanted religious freedom. So God opened up the door, and this prophecy is found in Genesis, by the way. Uh, God opened up the door, and the pilgrims came over and established their first colony. It begins to grow. It struggles, but it begins to grow. And we see by 1700 that America is well on her way. But we also see that, like everything else, as time goes on, things of God begin to erode. And I've said this many, many times that all history boils down just to two concepts, God moving in a direction to establish what he wants to do and the devil moving to stop it. And that's really history in its basic form. So we see that by the time we get to around 1730 or 1740, some of the old heresy is creeping into the new country. So God, what he does, he brings about in the history of the United States what is known in church history and known in secular history as the Great Awakenings. And there's seven of them. And the Great Awakenings is down through the history of this country, starting around 1740, God using men to inject himself into this country to keep it in line with the Word of God. And in 1740, you'll find the first uh, Great Awakening in New England. And of course, it's, it's led by... Uh, George Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards. 
A little bit later on in the 18, early 1800s, around 1810, somewhere in there, another second awakening breaks out in New York and Pennsylvania. Around 1830, uh, it's moving now from the east to the west, which is the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. We have the Cumberland Valley, Valley Gap awakening. During the 1860s in the Civil War, we found uh, in the south, anyhow, a great revival of the fourth great awakening. And in the fifth one in the 1880s, we find it's moving this way from Ohio and Illinois with D.L. Moody, which is the fifth great awakening. The Sixth Great Awakening <clears throat> takes place in the early 1900s uh, with, uh, with Billy Sunday, and that would be the Sixth Great Awakening. The Seventh Great Awakening starts around 1950, and it starts with the world's probably in the 20th century, starting out this way. Anyhow, one of the greatest evangelists, Billy Graham, who then later apostatizes, and it all falls apart. But what I'm saying is this, you'll find that God is injecting himself in this country through seven great awakenings to keep this country online. What the devil did in counter to that is to bring up the seven American cults that were used by the devil to counterpoint what God was doing. When the, when the great awakening in New England in 1740 or so, the devil countered with the Mormon church in 1800 with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. When the Second Great Awakening took place, then the devil countered in around 1830 with the Seventh Day Adventist with uh, William Miller and Mary White. In the 1830 Cumberland Valley revival, we see the 1840 now, we see the Christian science movement with Mary Baker Eddy. During that Civil War, we saw through Alexander Campbell the Church of Christ come into being. In the Ohio Valley under Moody, we saw now around 1860 the Jehovah Witnesses come into being with Russell and Rutherford. In the middle 20s with Billy Sunday, we find, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the unity movement, which we all know today under uh, Charles Fillmore and Emily Cattady. In 1950, when Billy Graham was doing him, we saw around 1920 the devil infusing the charismatic movement through uh, Amy McPherson. And what we have here now with understanding... What we have here in America is seven American cults who hate God, hate truth, hate Christianity, and have set themselves up as the only true church on planet Earth. And when you come up against these guys, now we can add the Roman Catholic Church to it, and we'll add neo-evangelicalism to it and neo-orthodoxy to it, but we'll deal with them a little differently, especially the Catholic Church. You won't deal with them the same way. We won't have time to get into that today, but we can talk about that some other time. Now, your job, when it comes up to these, and you're going to find these guys all the time, your job, spiritually speaking, is to kill them. Now, I know that doesn't sound very spiritual. You've been hanging out in the nursery too much. You smite them hip and thigh, your motto and your, your way you operate is no quarter asked, no quarter given. It's a clear example of David and Goliath, and you've got to kill the giant. You deal with them just like the Lord dealt with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 23. Did you ever read it? Well, if you ever read it, you're going to come away saying, well, Jesus, he lost the sweet spirit of Christ. But you must have an attack plan. For them, that will be absolutely undefendable. 
And when you get into that attack mode, you never take your finger off the trigger. Now, you need to get shed of the idea right now. When you start dealing with a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or any one of these seven cults, you need to get it out of your brain that you're going to win them. I'm going to explain that here in just a little bit. You have to bury them. Like Elijah did in 1 Kings chapter 18. Wow. One man is up against the 450 prophets of Baal who are connected with Ahab and Jezebel. And the great challenge is, whose God is going to be God? The God of Baal or the God of Israel? So Elijah takes them on. And he says, okay, boys, here's what we'll do. Let's build an altar, put a sacrifice on it, and let's call down fire from our God. The God who brings down the fire will be the true God. And he says, you guys go first. So the 450 prophets of Baal, they get to it. They kill all these animals, they build this big thing, and they put down there, and then they all get around and pray for their God to send down fire. And Elijah's standing over here. And he's watching all this going off, and they're going around, and they're saying, oh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, fruit of loom, Jesus, help us bring down a fire from heaven. Nothing comes. So they do what all Catholics do when they don't get their way. They start to cut themselves, mutilate themselves, thinking that their God will have respect to their blood running out their wrists and bring fire down. Nothing comes. They go from early in the morning to noon. Nothing happens. Now, Elijah's standing over here and he's saying, and the Bible says in the verse there, it says, and Elijah, oh, here it comes, an unspiritual word. He mocked them. <laughs> he mocked them. What a nasty man. He, he mocked them. And you want the details. It says, he says, hey, hey, guys. He walks out. Hey, guys. Noon. Where's your God? Oh, I know. I bet he's on vacation. Maybe he's hunting. I heard turkey season's in. <clears throat> Maybe he's hunting. Now, I never use another translation. Never. But in this particular case, I always bend to the greatest translation on this passage anywhere. Even better than the King James Bible for my purposes. Because in the living Bible here in this passage, Elijah says, maybe he's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> I use that. Only time I ever go to the Greek and Hebrew. The Hebrew word for toilet is akaka. And he makes fun of them. He mocks them. He ridicules them so they'll see that they really don't have the power that they claim to have. And then it's his turn, verse 31 through 38. And he, you know what he does? He puts his, he puts his uh, wood down, puts his down, and then he calls for, I don't know how many, I forget, buckets of water to be thrown on it. Making it as hard as possible for this thing to get lit. So he keeps putting water on it. They're still over here going, fee, fi, fo, fum, where'd the fire come from? And they're not getting anything. (laughs) 
He dumps water on it, then he stands back and he calls on the God of Israel. And the fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the wood and it consumes the stones. I guess we find out who God is God. You know what he did then? He killed them. Hacked them to pieces. No, I'm not advocating you go hack them to pieces. Now, most of God's people will make a fatal mistake here when they're dealing with these kind of fools. And I want you to listen to me here very carefully. Now, the key word here in this crowd found in Proverbs verses 26, 5 is the word conceit. And in this case, it's a religious conceit. We talk about spiritual wickedness in high places. You see this conceit into every educated neo-evangelical pastor, every cult member out there, they have a conceit that they're right and the whole world is wrong. They are taught and trained that you as a Baptist are on your way to the lake of fire, that they're the only true church, and they're conceited in that. And if you try to just to go toe-to-toe with them on the little Bible verses, you're a fool. Now, let me show you something. When you debate them, you give them the one thing that they desperately desire that they don't have, and I'm going to show you why they don't have it in a moment. You give them credibility. By even going to the Bible with them, when you begin to debate them, they got their verses, you got yours. You're recognizing them as a group worthy of a literal Bible debate. And you will wind up enabling them. And you will never win them. The problem is you're stupid and you can't fix stupid. And you have no understanding of Proverbs chapter 26 verse 5 of what is before you. You have no discernment, no perspective, no understanding, and you're certainly not smarter than the problem. So you get into a debate with them. Their verses versus your verses. And at the end of the day, you will never change anybody's mind or ever reach them. In reality, it's your spiritual conceit versus their foolish conceit. They have been trained to know what you will say better than you're going to say it. They will know what verses you're going to go to long before you ever flip through them in your Bible. It will be a complete waste of time. It only shows how unprepared and what a lack of understanding you have. No, you got to hit them where they have no answer. You gotta, you gotta keep them off guard. You gotta keep, you gotta take charge of that situation and you gotta keep charge of it. You know why, when they teach you this, you know why most policemen you meet, they're not very friendly? Now, some of them are, but some of the guys, they act like they're, they're bigger than life. And maybe some of them are, but the reason why they're that way is because when they go into a situation, no matter what it may be, they have to stay in control of it. From the very get-go, they want you to know who's in charge. 
And so they're not going to be real friendly. They're going to be nice. They'll be, per- they'll be kind. But if things start to go south, you walk into a domestic abuse and two women are going at it. The guy will come in and say, okay, let's cool down here. That's, uh, ma'am, I want you to stand over here. And she's the kind that doesn't want to stand over there. And he'll say, and if she, ma'am, I want you to stand over here. And she keeps, ma'am, I'm going to tell you one more time and then I'm going to arrest you. And she goes, stands over there. See, if he'd have said, Ma'am, would you please you'll stand over there while I talk to this? We've got to work this out. Can't we all just get along? He takes charge. I, I teach, years ago, I used to teach young gals and guys, but especially the girls, how to defend themselves, you know? And I think, I think every, every woman that needs to be trained in it, but I think you had to have a concealed carry. I think every one of you. I just, I, that's my own personal opinion. But I used to tell, and I used to tell them, you know what? You're a young little sweet little gal. Oh, come here, Jamie, come up here. I'm gonna, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Let's put your Bible down. Now look at this. Now look at this. Now I'm a 250 pound moose. And I see her walking through the parking lot late at night from wherever she's coming from work. Now, she's got a concealed carry. And 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 I'm coming over there and I start to bother her and she pulls her gun out. Now, the gun is intimidating enough, but I'm a big guy, and I think she's a little sweet little thing, and she's got a gun. But I'm not sure she knows how to use it or has the guts to use it. See? And I think I can overpower her, because she's hot. <laughs> so, 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 here's what you got to do. You got a K in charge. Yeah, you pull out the gun, he's coming towards you, and you say, freeze, you Babylonian miscarriage! <laughs> now, he's not only faced with a gun, he's faced with a mouth. <laughs> Who he now is not too sure. He may have found the tiger in the tank here. And it's going to be a thing where she, she's got a gun, but now she sounds like she knows how to use it. So I'm going to just back up, and then you have the five-foot rule. You get five foot to you, shoot them. Don't get them any closer than five foot. And, but you've got to take charge. Now, I learned this one time when I was a kid. You can sit down now. Thank okay. you. Friend. <laughs> Make sure your gun doesn't fall out. Uh, it's a little kid. I watched Saturday morning comics. And there's things in my life that my mind just took a photograph of, and I've remembered it forever. And I'd be out there Saturday morning, gnawing on my fudge sickle, you know, watching morning comedy. And I remember this little comic. I, I forget like it was yesterday. I never forgot it. And I, it's, it's the basis that I, you know, so I'm watching this, and there's three little bunnies hopping around. And they're cute little bunnies. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, and every kid, oh, that is so cute. And then this big shadow overcomes them. And the camera gets up, and here's a big vulture buzzard looking at those three little innocent rabbits going to swoop down and going to eat them. And I'm thinking now, oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, that's what kids do. Oh, no. And so these three little bunnies, they hop into this bush to hide. This big buzzard swooping around. He's going to come down and get him. And then one of the little bunnies throws back the bush and the two other bunnies are sitting on a 20-millimeter anti-aircraft gun. <laughs> Got their little helmets on. And that guy swoops down in there and there. Boom, 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 to the ground. 
Now, I said all that to say this. <laughs> These Jehovah Witnesses are the buzzards, and they think you're a little bunny rabbit. And they're going to swoop down because they've been trained that Baptists are stupid. Only part of their training which is correct. They've been trained that, they're, that, that, that we are stupid, that we are dumb, that we can't ever, 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 ever defend ourselves. And we are just, uh, uh, no, you've got to come to the place where when you're dealing with them, just like defending yourself, you have to take control. And you never take your finger off the trigger. You never move off the point no matter how they try to get you off. And I'm telling you, it, and, and this is where most of God's people get sucked in. They'll have a circular reasoning to what they're going to do. They will run you in a circle, and you'll never get through to them. You know what? The cults will attack our young Christians. Now, listen to me. The cults, all of them, will attack our young Christians, but you'll never attack their young Christians. You know why? Because they're smarter than we are. They don't put their young Christians out till they're grounded and know what they're doing. I was at Quick Trip. Oh, this has been several months ago. Stopped there one afternoon to get a couple of hot dogs. Uh, they got great hot dogs at Quick Trip, by the way. And so I'm sitting out there. Nice day. I'm sitting out in the thing there. And I watch this, this suburban pull in and all these Jehovah Witnesses get out of the thing. I know the Jehovah Witnesses. I can smell them. They all go in to get their Jehovah Witness break. And, and, and they come out and I'm in there eating my hot dog and I'm just minding my own business. And so this young kid comes over. And I didn't, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm here. I want my hot dog. I'm not, and he, he says, uh, may, I, may I speak with you for a moment? And I know already where he's coming from. And he has this literature there. And he says, may I give you one of these? I said, absolutely. And I said, I saw when you came in that you guys were Jehovah Witnesses. He says, really? He said, how did you know that? I said, because I used to be a Jehovah Witness. And I said, I'll take this. Why don't you give me all of them? He says, what do you want for? I says, that's less that you can pass out and damn somebody's soul to hell. I said, I used to be a Jehovah Witness. But I said, I got out of it. You know why I got out of it? I said, because I had one question that nobody could answer. And I gave him that question. And he didn't have an answer. And about that time, his handler stepped out, comes over and says, come on, son, let's go. I said, he didn't answer my question. He says, come on, let's go. He was not going to let me talk to the young guy. You know why? He hadn't been brainwashed yet. He still had maybe half a brain. If I could have got alone with him, I may have cracked it. But the old boy wasn't crackable. And he's got, they're going to make sure you don't get to your, their young people, but they'll get to yours. And you know why? Because you'll let them. I'm telling you. Now, here's understanding. Here's wisdom. Outside the Roman Catholic Church, because that's a different group. Every group you will face and deal with will have one thing in common, and this is their downfall. Every cult, every American cult, along with neo-evangelicalism, charismatic movement, and also the, uh, the orthodox, neo-orthodox movement, all of those cults, whether they're saved or they're lost, will have no history before 1800. They'll have 1,900 years of dedicated history that nobody on planet Earth ever believed anything they do. And the Bible says in Psalms 127 verse 1, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain to build it. You destroy them by denying what they want, credibility and legitimacy. You ridicule them. 
with their lack of history. You beat them senseless with no roots. Nothing. You expose them for what they are. You challenge them. I would say to them, I'm go- you know what? I can't believe you believe this. You look like an intelligent kid. And I'm not going to accept one thing that you say until you can answer this one question. If you answer this question, I'll be your convert. And here's the question. I'll give you 50. No, no. I'll give you a No, I'll give you 200 names of men who you could go to a public library who believe from 100 AD to 1800 AD. And I could give you thousands. I'm going to give you men who believe what I believe right now today. All I'm asking you is give me one who believe what you believe. And you nail them. I'll say in the first, second, and third century, I'll give you an Astorius. I'll give you a Mane. I'll give you a Montanus. I'll give you a Novatius. I'll give you a Dante. I'll give you a John of Antioch. I'll give you a Takam of Flanders. I'll give you all of the, and I'll give you a hundred more. Just give me who you got. Just give me one. No, don't, 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 don't. Just give me one. Don't quit looking at me like a frog in a hailstorm. Just give me one. You're claiming to me that you got the truth and I'm going to hell and I got all, you got all this truth and you are the true church. Where were you for 1900 years? Okay, forget the first third century. You obviously missed that class. Okay. How about the Polyseans? How about the Bogomiles? How about the Waldensians? How about the Sandalatas? How about the Valdois? How about the Albigensians? How about the Huguenots? How about the Anabaptists from 400 to 1500? And out millions of people. And you? Name me one person. Just one. Make one up. Ralph Schwartz. I don't care. Just one. (laughs) Give me one person from 400 to 1500 that on this planet anywhere, Antarctica, South Antarctica, I don't care, that believed what you believed. I'll tell you what. You must have missed that class too. How about Savonarola? How about Wycliffe? How about Tyndale? How about John Huss? How about Martin Luther? Roger Williams? George Whitfield? Jonathan Edwards? Matthew Henry? How about, uh, how about uh, uh, Adoniah Judson? Uh, William Tennant? George Mueller? General Booth? David Brainerd? John Knox? I mean David Livingston? Gypsy Smith? Hudson Taylor? How about George Truett? How about uh, Count Zindendorf? How about August Spandenberg? How about John Patton? How about John Locke? How about Harry Martin? How about, how about Sheldon Jackson? How about Mordecai Ham? 28! Just give me one! These guys believe what I believe. These guys changed the world. And here you show up, what, 1820? I said, I have met rocks that are smarter than you. What, you're an idiot. Let me tell you something, son. In 1878, the Mormon church that had been in existence now for about 40 years. And in 1878... They wanted to have polygamy. And it had been an ongoing ballet. That's more than one wife. And the government said it's against the law to have more than one wife. They went to the Supreme Court in 1878. Got to the courthouse. And took it to the Supreme Court that you can't tell us. You can't tell us that we can't have more than one wife because of the separation of church and state. And you can't enter into our church and tell us how to dictate it. And they took that to the Supreme Court. You know what the Supreme Court said in 1878? They said, you know what? You're right. We have no right to dictate what a Christian organization believes, but since you're not a Christian organization, it doesn't apply. 
The Supreme Court. Got to get him. Don't let him breathe. Oh, he'll try to rule you around. He'll try to, he'll try to say, well, what about Acts 238? What about Mark 16, Nail him. And you can't be nice about it. If you want to be nice and, and effeminate, stay in the nursery. Stay out of combat. Don't worry about getting any combat ribbons on your chest. Just keep marshmallows in your pocket. Be a nice feeling for your hands to squeeze them when you get nervous. <laughs> now, I'm not done yet. Oh, no, I'm just getting started. Look, hear me out. You want wisdom? You want understanding? You want to nail them? You want to get them where they have no answers? They have no answers to that. I'll tell you something else. Every one of these cults used the King James Bible up to about 1950. Every one of them. Now, I would tell them, look, Bugwit, the King James Bible that you use was written by 50, or was put together by 54 translators from Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge. They worked together and they produced the King James Bible that you have and you use in your church. And you say I'm wrong, but every one of those translators believed exactly what I believed and never believed one thing you believed. You want to talk about your true church and what you got? Let me tell you something. The Bible you preach from came from me and what my church believes. And I don't care if you use an ASV or an NIV or you got them new translations today. You talk about the Catholic Church and how demonic they are. And I agree. But you know what? Here you are, the true church and the only Bible you got, you got from the Roman Catholic Church. How stupid are you? While the very Bible you use had to get from men who believe what I believe. And not one day in their life ever believe one thing you believe. You're a joke. You're a cult. You're stupid. You're so stupid you make a rock look like a PhD. Now, I just got one question that maybe you'll answer this. At birth, how long were you without oxygen? Now, you're brain dead. You want me to believe that you got the truth. I'm going to tell you something. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. And you got to answer that fool according to his folly. Lest he goes away and your little debate wise in his own conceit that he defeated you. And then you go off to your friend. Well, I had a real knockdown drag out with a Jehovah Witness today. Oh, I really did good. You didn't do squat. Now, when you're dealing with this kind of conceited fool, you got to nail him. And he will try to squeeze and jump and move all over the place. And you've got you to you send him home with his tail between his legs. You and the way you handle him based on how he's been brainwashed and how he's been trained. Listen to me. Your way you deal with this fool, listen, may be the only chance he has. You've got to introduce him to your friend, Blunt Trauma. You got to introduce to him to your other buddy, brute force. And you got to teach, show him your sister, shock and awe. It ain't one of these things where at the end you just say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Bang! You nail him. It's the only chance he may have. Rock his world. 
Make him go home in the Holy Spirit of God. He, finally, you've nailed him. Somebody's nailed him on one thing that he has no answer for. Nobody prepared him for that. Now you've given that crack in his world that the Holy Spirit of God come in and do something. You bury him. You say things like, oh, I've done this. Now, let me get this straight. You got the only church. My church, all the other churches are wrong, and the only way to heaven is through your church. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, whatever it may be. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, help me with this. You came into being in 1820, 1830, 1840. We've already established there's nobody in history that believes what you believe. So what you're telling me is for 1,900 years, every man, woman, and child on this planet had to go to the lake of fire because they couldn't find the truth. So 500 billion people went to hell, and then suddenly in 1820, God decided to get around and send the truth down through you guys? Do I, do I look like I'm stupid? That is the most ludicrous, dumb thing I ever heard in my life. For 1,900 years, the whole world did not have the truth till your guy found it. And from 1820, 30, or 40 to this day, the world is bathed in the light of your teachings. You're an idiot. Years ago, this is back in the 70s, I had a woman call me and she says, I've been to some of your Bible studies and I have a boy who's a Jehovah Witness. Would, uh, and, and I asked him and he's willing to talk with you. Uh, would you be willing to talk with him? And I said, sure, absolutely. Well, he lived up in Grandview. And so I, I, I went over to see him and I had every book that Jehovah Witness had ever written. I had their Bible, the New World Translation. I had all of their books. And I put them all in a big cardboard box. Because when you start to deal with these guys, intimidation is the key. Most of God's people are intimidated of them. You've got to establish the fact that you're going to intimidate them. So I went to the house, knocked on the door, carried my box, and walked in there. And he's looking at this box of all the Jehovah Witnesses books. And he says, what are those for? And I said, well, I thought maybe we'd want to start going through these. And I just, I, I, I didn't do any of that. I just, what I did is what I just told you. I asked him that question. He tried to jump around me and get around me every way he could. I just kept holding his feet to the fire. I said, I'm not going to talk to you about the Bible. I'm not going to give you any legitimacy till you answer one question. And if you answer this question, I'll be your first convert. But I want this answer. Where were you for 1,900 years? Give me some names of some people who believe what you believe. I'll give you 200 to 1. And I started rattling him off. Well, after about two or three hours, he kicked me out, which I expected. Four years later, I got a phone call from that kid. And he said, I just want to let you know that I have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, my own personal Savior, and I've got out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. Praise the Lord. He said, no, 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 I want to thank you. He said, that day we met, he said, I could never get that question out of my mind. He says, I went back to my, my, my church. They couldn't answer it. I even moved to New York to the Watchtower uh, headquarters. Nobody could answer it there. And finally, I came to the point that I realized that it was a cult and I shouldn't be in it. And I turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and I trusted in my own personal Savior. I just want to call and thank you. It was the only chance he had. 
you got to answer a fool like that according to his folly. And you can't be nice about it because that's the only chance he's got. The only chance he has is you to take from him what he so desperately desires. The only chance he has is for you to strip him of his conceit. And you can't do that by agreeing to disagree. You can't do that by, well, at the end of the day, we all love Jesus. You can't do that without exposing him for what he is on a grounds that he absolutely cannot defend. So our verses today are two great ones for two kinds of fools, saved and lost. One, you don't answer according to his folly or you're just as big a fool as he is. And you, you deal with him based on being able to read who you're dealing with. The other, you answer according to his folly, or he goes away wise in his own conceits because you got into the Bible with him, therefore, in his mind, legitimizing him. Well, I'm worthy. See, if he's willing to sit down and open up the Bible, that means he, he, he thinks that, that we have some worth in the Bible. Absolutely not. I'm not even going to give you that. I'm going to strip you of anything like that. And when you debate the guy, that's what you do. In Jesus' day, you have the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 33, boy, he goes to town on them. Now, the scribes were a legitimate group that are found in the Bible that had corrupted themselves. But just like our American cult back in Israel's day, the scribes and the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not legitimate. There were no Pharisees anywhere on this earth to 135 years before Christ, 135 B.C. The Sadducees didn't show up to 167 B.C., 167 years before Christ. So in other words, you had, what, 14, 1,200 years in the nation of Israel where they didn't have these guys, and suddenly now when Jesus shows up, they are the established truth? Are you kidding me? Now, Jesus understood that, and he knew that. So in Matthew chapter 23, brother, he puts it to him. In verse 13, he says, you know what you guys do? You shut up heaven for yourselves, and everybody else that follows you, you send them straight to hell. You know what he says in verse 14? Now, he's lost the sweet spirit of Christ today. I want you to know that. He says in verse 14, you devour widows' houses. You take everything from the widows. You take everything they got. And for a pretense, a pretense, you make great prayer. But you know what? You're going to receive the greater damnation. Wow. He says in verse 15, you combust land and sea to make one proselyte. You've got a great missionary program. And when you do, you make him twofold times the child of hell. He calls them blind guides in verse 16. In verse 24, he calls them blind guides again, somebody who's trying to lead somebody that's blind themselves. And he says, you know what you do? You strain in the gnat, you swallow the camel. You know what he's saying there? He's saying a gnat is just a little bug and a camel is a big animal. And he says, you focus on all the little gnats and don't even pay attention to the great doctrines of the Bible, the camel. He says in verse 25, you make clean the outside of the cup, you polish it in a platter, but he says inside it's full of extortion and excess. He says in verse 27, you guys are like whited sepulchers, that's tombs. You're white and beautiful on the outside with all the flowers, but on the inside what you teach is full of dead man bones. He says, outwardly you appear righteous, verse 20 says, but within you're all hypocrisy and iniquity. And he says in verse 33, when he closes it out, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's the Lord's take on dealing with his cults. 
No, Jesus is a friend of sinners here. No, does Jesus care? He knows and understands who they are, and he knows that they have an agenda, just like the ones in our country. And he answered their foolishness according to their own folly, lest they'd go away and wise in their own conceits. And boy, when he was done with them, they knew they'd been had. And in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 and 5, they're great principles for the advanced Christian, showing the importance of, of number one, getting understanding perfectly in all things. And then the discernment and the perception through understanding of knowing what and who you're dealing with, how to deal with them, and where to go on from here. Last week we closed, as we're going to close right here, not telling the story again, but I told you the story of Gideon 300. And uh, it takes a serious kind of person for this level of dealing with people. Last week I showed you Gideon 300. He had 32,000, and right out of the chute, 22,000 headed for the barn. He had 10,000 left, and the test for that, that God could use them, was how they drank the water. And that's exactly what God is looking for today. He took the 300 that drank the water cautiously, drank the water uh, not foolishly, but diligently. He took the 300 and sent their 9,700 home who drank it foolishly. Translation, God can't use every child of God today. Wish he could. It all comes down to how you drink the water. It all comes down to how you lap it up, how you do it. Do you just stick your face down in it and get your daily bread for what you want? Or do you drink it cautiously, looking around you, knowing you're in a war and you're in a battle and the enemy's out there and you're going to devour him before he devours you? That's a simple. There you have it. We're done. Answer a fool according to his folly or answer not a fool according to his folly. Now you know why. <laughs>